verse 20. The oracle of the castless broken arm. The oracle of the castless broken arm. In the 11th year, the first month, 17th of the month, we're back to around 586 B.C. now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh king of Egypt. And behold, it has not been bound up for healing or wrapped with a bandage that it may be strong to hold the sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against Pharaoh king of Egypt and will break his arms, both the strong and the broken, and I have made the sword fall from his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands. Exactly what happened when Babylon conquered. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand and I will break the arms of Pharaoh so that he will groan before him with the groanings of a wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon but the arms of Pharaoh will fall. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. When I scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands, then they will know that I am the Lord. The oracle of the castless broken arm. Pharaoh won't even have a cast to set the broken bones. He just has to lie there and writhe in the brokenness. Now, a quick note, the arm is a figure for military might. The arm of Pharaoh is a picture or a figure of the breaking of Pharaoh's armies, of his military strength. I mentioned the Six-Day War earlier. A modern example comes from this. And by the way, I would highly recommend, if you've never read it, Michael B. Oren's book, Six Days of War. It is a fascinating account of what happened politically, um, militarily, during those six days in June of 1967. But check this out. At the time, Egypt had another charismatic, pharaoh-like leader. Some of you may remember this guy, Gamel Abdel Nasser. Nasser was president of Egypt. Nasser was beloved, especially by the women of Egypt. He was a a good-looking, a smart, a well-spoken man, a power monger in the Middle East. And Nasser really believed that he was going to lead the Arab world in the decimation of Israel. We're going to drive, finally going to drive the Jew out into the sea. He had a mighty army. They were strong, and he believed the takedown was possible. He's working all the angles to make it happen. And on the first day of the Six-Day War, June 5th, 1967, Israel surprised Egypt and destroyed 90% of Egypt's air force. 90% of their planes lay smoldering on the runways in Egypt. Useless now for this war. By the fourth day of that war, the military arm of Egypt was completely broken. Egypt's famed military simply collapsed. When you read this uh, Six Days of War, Oren's book, it's amazing. There's a moment as, as you're reading it, it's history, so you know what happened. But I, I don't know about you, but I start to get into it. I'm like, are they going to take them out? What's going to happen? I've got to get to the next page. I don't know if Israel's going to survive this, you know. There's a point where there was a single line, and it, it really was stunning to me in my reading. And all Oren said was, the army of Egypt collapsed. I read that and I just went, that's amazing. How does an entire army just fold and run for home? And that's what happened on that fourth day. And then on the fourth day, Israel was able to turn its direction and fight up in the north on the Golan Heights against Syria. In an amazing military victory, miraculous, this pastor would say, well, the Lord described that collapse 
when Babylon came down upon Egypt, the military of Pharaoh collapsed like a broken arm. Oracle number five, the oracle of the chopped down cedar. The oracle of the chopped down cedar. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high, and its top was among the clouds. The waters made it grow, the deep made it high, and its rivers continually extended all around its planting place and set out its channels to all the trees of the field. Therefore its height was loftier than all the trees of the field, and its boughs became many and its branches long because of many waters as it spread them out. Verse 6, note this, All the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all great nations lived under its shade. Now this is a picture. All these trees, and all the birds, and all the beasts, this is a picture of the nations of the world coming under the authority of Assyria. And God is making a comparison now between Assyria and Egypt. Assyria, which would become a chopped down cedar. But quick note, the birds and the beasts here refer to the nations. Now I'm just going to throw this out here because this thought occurred to me today. Matthew 13, verse 31, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. He said, Which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now the context of that parable, it comes right after the parable of the wheat and the tares. The tares being a picture of evil spread among the wheat. It comes right before the picture of the leaven in the loaf. Leaven, a picture of sin getting all through the loaf. So I believe because of the context of these three parables that the birds portray evil. And I don't just say that because they try to white out my notes. Okay, <laughs> They portray wickedness. Wickedness and evil in the Bible. Right? I had never seen this before, but suddenly we see here in Ezekiel 31, verse 6, all the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs under the branches the beasts of the field gave birth. All the great nations lived under its shade. And I wonder, might the birds in Jesus' parable not only indicate wickedness in the world, but indicate the nations? What do you mean? Well, let me ask you, have the nations been blessed by the shade of the kingdom? Of course they have. For 2,000 years, since citizenship in the kingdom was announced by Jesus, since the coming of the kingdom became the rally cry of the church, for 2,000 years, the world has been blessed simply by the truth of Jesus Christ. Simply by the hope of the coming king. Simply by the work of God's Spirit through the church, in the world, hospitals, schools, all kinds of things that have made the world a better place for people to live. The birds, the nations, nesting in the tree of the kingdom. Perhaps. Verse 7. So it was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots extended to many waters. The cedars in God's garden could not match it. The cypresses could not compare with its boughs. And the plane trees could not match its branches. No tree in God's garden could compare with it in its beauty. I made it beautiful with the multitude of its branches. And all the trees of Eden which were in the garden of God were jealous of it. 
speaking again of the might of Assyria. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it is high in stature and has set its top among the clouds and its heart is haughty in its loftiness, therefore I will give it into the hand of a despot of the nations. He will thoroughly deal with it. According to its wickedness, I have driven it away. Alien tyrants of the nations have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in the valleys, its branches have fallen and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land and all the peoples of the earth have gone down from its shade and left it. On its ruin, all the birds of the heavens will dwell and all the beasts of the field will be on its fallen branches so that all the trees by the waters may not be exalted in their stature. All the trees speaking of the nations nor set their top among the clouds, nor their well-watered mighty ones stand erect in their height. For they have all been given over to death, to the earth beneath, among the sons of men, to those who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God, On the day when, I went, when it went down to Sheol, I caused lamentations. I closed the deep over it. I held back its rivers, and its many waters were stopped up, and I made Lebanon mourn for it, and all the trees of the field wilted away on account of it. Again, this is a picture of the fall of Assyria. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall, and when I made it go down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit, and all the well-watered trees of Eden, the choicest and best of Lebanon, were comforted in the earth beneath They also went down with it to Sheol, to those who were slain by the sword, and those who were in strength lived under its shade among the nations. To which among the trees of Eden are you, now speaking to Pharaoh, thus equal in glory and greatness. Yet you will be brought down with the trees of Eden to the earth beneath. You will lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. So is Pharaoh and all his hordes, declares the Lord God. The oracle of the chopped down cedar. As Assyria fell, portrayed in this oracle, so Egypt would fall. And by the way, so would Babylon. So would Persia. So would Greece. So would Rome. And all the trees, that is every nation since all the nations will fall. Why? Because the Lord takes issue with foolish pride. The Lord hates the pride of man. The man who would lift himself up and talk about his greatness and express his splendor in the world. The man who would say like Pharaoh, I made the Nile. Or like Nebuchadnezzar, look at all that I have created. And the Lord hates foolish pride. Why does He hate it so much? Well, one reason is very simple. It robs Him of His rightful glory. When I start to puff myself up and say, look at what I've done. Consider my accomplishments. Look at how I've, I've created in my world. I rob God of His glory. We were watching, we picked up a movie, Epic. I don't know if you've seen the movie, Epic Kids Movie. And it's another one of those movies about nature and you know all the little beings in the forest, all the little imps and you know flowers and the bugs and everything, and how they kind of fight together. And we watched it with the kids, and it, it, you know, it's kind of seemingly innocuous. It's not really even an environmentalist movie so much as the, 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 the rot and the moss and the stuff in the forest fighting against, oh, the flowers and the good things, you know. <laughs> but I watched it, and I, I told Cheryl when it was over, I said, you know what really bothers me about this? Movies like this deny God the glory of creation. 
Because they claim that a little fairy has to pick up this bulb at the right time to make the goodness of the earth rejuvenate itself. And it completely denies the fact that God created this world. That God made the beauty. That God planted the flowers and grows the green grass and and builds up the stately cedar trees. It's His work. It's His glory. The animated animation places come along and they make these movies and say, oh no, it's just about nature and nature doing its thing. And, and it robs God of His rightful glory. We've read this verse almost every week the last two or three. I am the Lord, Isaiah 42.8. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act, Isaiah 48.11. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? Now, Someone might hear me say that, talking about the foolishness of our pride, and say, well, isn't it prideful of God to say that I have a rightful glory that belongs to me? I'm just asking the question. Gang, listen. It is never that God needs me to worship Him. It's that I need to worship Him. Because if I don't, I am out of place. When any being... Being an angel or a human gets cocky and lifted up, things go sideways. It always happens. Life gets out of whack. There are spiritual, ding, 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 spiritual realities going on here. Life gets out of whack when we try to puff ourselves up or build up ourselves or any other idol or being above the Lord God. When the one true God, the Lord, is not worshipped, the trees begin to fall. All glory is rightfully His. Not because He's asked for it, but but because it is. It just is. That's just the way it is. That's the grand reality. And I've said before, the big picture of earth, history is not about the salvation of man. History is about the glorification of God. Salvation is one of the many things that proves the glory of God. But it's His glory that matters. Now, I know you're going, how are we going to finish this now? We've been here an hour. Okay, the last two oracles will go by quickly. They are sung as two laments. Oracles that are laments. And the first one, which is number six in our list, I believe, last one was the oracle of the chopped down cedar, is the oracle of, we'll just call it the crocodile's carcass. We've already seen the the oracle of the crocodiles, and now we're going to deal with the crocodile's carcass. Okay, you ready for this? Chapter 32, verse 1, in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh king of Egypt and say to him, You compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you are like a monster, Tanim, in the seas. You're a crocodile. And you burst forth in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, now I will spread my net over you with a company of many peoples and they shall lift you up in my net. I will leave you on the land. I will cast you on the open field and will cause all the birds of the heavens to dwell on you and I will satisfy the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your refuse. I will also make the land drink the discharge of your blood as far as the mountains and the ravines will be full of you. The Oracle of the Crocodile's Carcass. Again, this is a retelling of 
the original oracle, but now it's a lamentation. But things suddenly get much bigger than an old dead crock. Verse 7, When I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens with and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. I will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord. I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among the nations into the lands which you have not known. I will make many peoples appalled at you and their kings will be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them and they will tremble every moment, every man for his own life on the day of your fall. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 10, you can read about the ninth plague that was brought, the ten plagues that God brought against Egypt when He brought the people out, right? The ninth plague was darkness. Three days of darkness on the land. But this may also, while it alludes to that, it may also be a prelude to the global calamity to come. Revelation chapter 8, verse 10 tells us the fourth angel sounded. This is now in the tribulation. And a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. So one third of every night, absolutely pitch black, no moon, no stars, no light whatsoever. One third of the day, pitch black. Can you imagine that? I mean, winter in the Northwest is depressing enough. (laughs) Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon will come upon you. By the swords of the mighty ones, I will cause your hordes to fall. All of them are tyrants of the nations. They will devastate the pride of Egypt. And all its hordes will be destroyed. I will also destroy its cattle from beside many waters. And the foot of man will not muddy them anymore. And the hoofs of beasts will not muddy them I will make their waters settle. I will cause their rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord Lord God. In other words, all those tributaries running off the Nile would get sullied and muddied and, and spoiled as Nebuchadnezzar's army marched across the land. When I make the land of Egypt, verse 15, a desolation, and the land is destitute of that which filled it, when I smite all those who live in it, then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is a lamentation, and they shall chant it Note this, the daughters of the nations shall chant it. Over Egypt and over all her hordes they shall chant it, declares the Lord. Interesting that this lament is for the daughters of the nations to chant. Women were typically the mourners in the Middle East of that day. Um, They were professional mourners who would be brought about to a funeral to sing the dirges, to lament the loss, to to do this. But notice, it's the daughters of nations. The daughters of nations. That is, nations that have grown out of nations. And they will be the ones who are lamenting the loss of this great nation of Egypt. Why? Why are the rest of the nations so concerned? And the reason is because in Ezekiel's day, just like in our day, all of the nations were enmeshed. So what happened to Egypt would affect everyone. We no longer live in a time when we can say America is just off on our own. That all we got to do is just pull back and have nothing to do with the rest of the world. We are so in bed with the rest of the world. Whatever happens, Syria... If we go in, and I'm not saying one way or another, if you want to talk about whether or not we should, I haven't even had time to think about that. 
Not that it matters what I think about it. But if we should go in, it could be a resetting of the nations of the world, including ours. That's how disturbing this whole thing is. We are enmeshed. Egypt, all of the nations, the daughters of nations would mourn because they were enmeshed. And as Egypt went down, so did the the economies of the nations all around. Even as Babylon was growing, Egypt has fallen apart. The Egyptians, they've been there from time immemorial, right? Mighty Egypt? Egypt can't fall, but it did. And it never rose to its former glory ever again. Now, just two weeks after this lament was prophesied, the final oracle came, number seven. Let's read it through. The oracle of the corrupt company, verse 17. In the twelfth year, on the fifteenth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, wail for the hordes of Egypt and bring it down, her and the daughters of the powerful nations, to the nether world with those who go down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and make your bed with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of those who are slain by the, sh- the sword. She is given over to the sword. They have drawn her and all her hordes away. The strong among the mighty ones shall speak of him and his helpers from the midst of Sheol. They have gone down. They lie still. The uncircumcised slain by the sword. Note this, verse 22. Assyria is there and all her company. Her graves are round about her. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword. Those whose graves are set in the remotest parts of the pit, and her company is round about her grave. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. Assyria then is Syria today. Elam is there, verse 24, which would be Iran today. Persia. The Elamites preceded Persia, preceded Iran. Alam is there, and her hordes around her, around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword who went down uncircumcised to the lower parts of the earth, who instilled their terror in the land of the living, and bore their disgrace with those who went down to the pit. That's interesting. These are those who instilled terror in the world. Terrorists. Verse 25, they've made a bed for her among the slain with all her hordes. Her graves are around it. They are all uncircumcised, slain by the sword, although their terror was instilled in the land of the living. And they bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit. They were put in the midst of the slain. Meshach, Tubal, and all their hordes were there. Bible students, where's that today? That's Russia. We're talking about Moscow, Tubolsk, the northern kingdoms, Russia, and their graves were around them. All of them were slain by the sword, uncircumcised, though they instilled their terror in the land of the living. Nor do they lie beside the fallen heroes of the uncircumcised, who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war, and whose swords were laid under their heads, but the punishment for their iniquity rested on their bones, though the terror of these heroes was once in the land of the living. But in the midst of the uncircumcised, you will be broken and lie with those slain by the sword. There is also Edom. There would be Jordan today, southern Jordan. Edom, its kings, its princes, who for all their might are laid with those slain by the sword, they will lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit. There are also the chiefs of the north, all of them, and all the Zidonians. We're talking about Lebanon today. The region mostly run by Hezbollah. 
who in spite of the terror resulting from their might in shame went down with the slain. So they lay down uncircumcised with those slain by the sword and bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit. These Pharaoh will see and he will be comforted for all his hordes slain by the sword even Pharaoh and all his army declares the Lord God. Though I instilled a terror of him in the land of the living, yet he will be made to lie down among the uncircumcised along with those slain by the sword, even Pharaoh and all his hordes, declares the Lord God. Pharaoh's only comfort, it's interesting, he says, Pharaoh will be comforted when Egypt goes down and he dies and he goes down to the pit. Why would Pharaoh be comforted? Pharaoh's only comfort will be in knowing that he's not alone in Sheol. He will look around, he will see... Assyria, Elam, Meshach, Tubal, Edom, the Zidonians, and his Egyptian horde, all of them in the pit. Kyle and Delich write, One only needs to enter the pyramids of Egypt and its catacombs today to see that the glory of the pharaohs has gone down into Sheol. And it is equally certain that this destruction of the glory of ancient Egypt dates from the times of the Babylonian Empire. Moreover, this destruction was so thorough that even to the new Egypt of the Ptolemies, the character of the old Egypt was a perfect enigma, a thing forgotten and incomprehensible. No wonder, the Lord says, come out of Egypt. Come out of Egypt. Why do people turn to Egypt when the enemy oppresses or attacks? Two words. Crocodile eyes. Eyes of the flesh. Eyes of Egypt. Rather than eyes of the Spirit. Proverbs 16 verse 2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Of Israel, the Apostle Paul gave an example. He quotes Isaiah saying in Romans 11 verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. Now listen, the picture here is amazing. Paul wrote that from personal experience. Paul was that Jew whose eyes were like crocodile eyes, whose eyes were shut, whose ears were shut, who could not see what he was doing. And so, on the road to Damascus, Jesus blinded him knocks him down, knocks him out, takes him on into Damascus. After three days of fasting and blindness, Jesus sends a man named Ananias to Paul. Remember the story? Acts chapter 9, verse 17. After laying his hands on him, Ananias said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled, note that, filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like, scales and he regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized wait a minute he got the Holy Spirit before he was baptized yeah he did and he took food and was strengthened and we're told for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God Now, what is the difference between this one time crocodile eyed Jew named Saul, and the gospel-proclaiming Paul, the difference, gang, is spiritual sight. 
the scales came off of his eyes and he could see. And we're not talking about physical sight. In fact, some think Paul had vision trouble the rest of his life. Perhaps the thorn in his flesh was vision trouble. But that's not the point. Suddenly Paul could see spiritually. Ding, 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 ding. He could see the reality. He could see truth. And it was because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. How would you like to have that kind of vision for your life? Mm -hmm. To know what God is about. To hear Him speaking. To understand His thoughts. You see, you can. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, when the Holy Spirit indwells us, we are given eyes to see what crocodiles cannot see. What the world of Egypt cannot see. Let me just read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. I would add, which none of the rulers of this age understand. They don't get it. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God prepared for those who love Him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. God is a God of revelation. And He would give us spiritual insight, spiritual eyes to see what's going on spiritually, which is the real reality. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And Paul says we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The word there, it's interesting, they say spiritual thoughts, spiritual words. It's just pneumatikos. Combining pneumatikos with pneumatikos. Literally combining spiritual things with spiritual things. What are you talking about, Paul? The Spirit of God speaks at a spiritual level. And he is understood in and by the spirit of a man, the spirit of a woman. His Holy Spirit speaks spiritual truth into my spirit. And so I understand. I begin to know what he wants me to know, to hear what he is speaking. How does that work? Because I know there are those who say... There's a, there's a reason that we think of spiritual things as non-reality. As we, we think of them as vague, as cloudy, as mysterious. There's a reason we don't understand those. It sounds kind of mystical, doesn't it? I, I'm sitting here saying God speaks spiritual things, combining spiritual things, His Spirit to my Spirit, that I might understand spiritual things. And most people would hear that and go, What? What does that mean? How does it work? It's not mystical, gang. Paul continues and he says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He just doesn't. Look at the nations of the world. They do not accept the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or understood. 
But he who is spiritual appraises all things, understands all things. You see, I know what's going on in Syria. I know what's happening in Egypt. I know what's going on in the, in the Middle East right now. It is all going according to God's plan. Step by step, moment by moment, we are coming down to the day of the Lord. I know that. It's not a shock and a surprise. But, oh, are, are we going to go into Syria? Something bad going to happen? Probably. All according to plan. Paul says, yet the spiritual person is understood by no one. Well, that makes sense. Appraised by no one. You ever get that? People look at you and go, I have no idea where you're even coming from. All this Jesus stuff. You're not going to. If you're looking at me physically, if you're trying to discuss Jesus with me on a worldly level, you're not going to get it. You're not going to understand it. And Paul says this, hear this again, one of these verses we repeat often to get into our, our hearts. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And there's the, the, key, the key. The key to spiritual living. Listen. We have the mind of Christ. What Egypt didn't get, what the world cannot understand, is this. Where there is pride and power and the glorification of man, the pneumatikos, the things of the Spirit, are incomprehensible. You will not hear the Spirit in the place of pride. So how do you see? How do you hear spiritually? Paul said we have the mind of Christ, right? What is the mind of Christ? He said in Philippians 2.5, have this mind in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. We have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is humility. The mind of Christ is gang, it, it, it's self-emptying. To understand, to hear spiritually, to see spiritually, to have spiritual things combined with spiritual things by the Holy Spirit into your spirit. There is one thing required of you, required of me, very simply. We empty ourselves of pride, haughtiness, selfishness, and self-confidence, and we worship. Worship. Well, Pastor Rick, I don't hear the Lord like you keep talking about I should hear the Lord. Then maybe you need to be worshiping more. I want to hear the Lord. Worship. Worship is absolutely the key. How do you know this? Because Jesus said God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the more I worship the Lord, the more I hear the Lord. The more I come before Him in the humility of worship, bowing down to His great glory, the more His Spirit speaks spiritual things to my spirit. And that's the reality that we are being sanctified to.